Thanks, Mark, for the introduction and the opportunity to come here to Darling Street, Anglican. And by the way, I came all the way from Reddy Hill and it took about 32 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll t I might touch on that particular issue because when you move around Sydney like I do, people think you come from a long, long way away, but it's not that far. So some of you may have come to hear me speak to get my views on the outlook for the residential market, but I want to leave with you much more than that perspective tonight. So I want to talk about the interaction of our Christian faith and making decisions about property. And for that matter, all of life's key decisions. To do that, I relate my journey. I felt that as I look back over my life, that really there's an interweaving of my faith together with, you know, decisions regarding property and work and many other issues that I think may be helpful to people. So I trust that it may be of value to you and also challenging to you tonight. Yeah, from an age perspective, some of this stuff would probably hit 20 and 30 year olds more, and that would be the time to probably be challenged on some of these issues, but we can be all challenged at any point in our life. And as we reconsider decisions that might be surrounding property, but also I think some of these principles that I could talk about apply to all of our decision-making. So to give a bit of background on myself, I think it's important that you understand that I've lived my whole life in the Western suburbs of Sydney. And when the media talk about the Western suburbs of Sydney, I don't mean Lidcombe <laughs> or other places, or they might even come even further in the West. They might be talking about where my daughter and her husband live now in Petersham. But no, I'm talking, I've lived in three homes in my life. Mount Druitt, that I'll mention in a minute, raised on a poultry farm. Samaris. After we were married, I lived there for eight years and I've lived in Rudy Hill for uh, 36 years. But while I've lived my whole life in the Western suburbs of Sydney, I've lived nearly, I've worked nearly my whole working career in the city, North Sydney and Chatsworth. And I retired from full-time paid work 18 months ago. So yeah, as I said, lived for 36 years in, uh, in Rudy Hill. We have, my wife, Sabrina and I have two adult children in their mid to late thirties and two grandchildren. Today was the day when we had the grandchildren. They didn't see much of me, partly because I was just looking over the talk and just refining things. Part of the day, I went to the gym for an hour and I also was planning an overseas holiday next year with wife and also taking my 87 year old grandmother, grandmother mother-in-law back to Italy, probably probably one of her last visits because she hasn't been since uh, four years. So we thought we'd probably try and do that. So I was trying to work the Emirates side today and didn't see if I could get the best deal. So my wife did most of the caring for the children and I wasn't, the grandchildren, I wasn't so involved. So through this talk this evening, I hope you'll see that it's been active decisions I've made over the years under God's direction. Uh, that has resulted in me living where I live. And, uh, but let me just give a bit more background on myself. I went to Plumpton, uh, primary school, uh, which is just a few kilometers, two or three kilometers to the north of Reddy Hill. 
Uh, that was the closest primary school uh, when on the poultry farm that I was raised on. In 1967, I started high school at Real High School. So most people know Rudy Hill probably for the RSL club. I did, I did play cricket for the RSL club for a number of years. And I, I stayed at Rudy Hill High School until I completed my HSC in 1972. And yes, I've just had a 50th anniversary reunion in the last six weeks, <clears throat> which was a, a great occasion. Excuse me. The, did I say the motto of the primary school was steadfast. The motto of the, of Aboriginal high school was, and still is persist. In fact, uh, the school was celebrating 60 years since they commenced this year. And they still make a big thing about that motto of persist. And I actually think those mottos have really been characteristics that have run deep through my life. And yeah, I'm not someone who gives up easily. And yeah, how much those mottos impacted, I don't know, but I'd say those two character traits are ones that should be part of all Christian life. And yeah, if we read through the scriptures, we see plenty of challenges, I suppose, with regard to, uh, you know, the need to, need to be steadfast, the need to be, you know, uh, holding firm and persisting in what we're doing. I then went on to study economics at the University of Sydney and then began my working career in 1976 at Phillips Industries as a market research officer, undertaking market research across a range of consumer appliances and also recorded music. They they not only had uh, Deutsche, Deutsche Gramophone and Philips labels, but they also had Astor Records at the time. They, when I worked for them in 76 to 79, of course, the biggest music around at the time was ABBA. And RCA had that, had, had ABBA and they were certainly number one as far as, as far as record labels at the time. Now, even at the start of my career, I, I see things as being ordained by God in a way, because in fact, I used to say with due respect to anybody who's worked in the Commonwealth public sector, I'd always say to my children, as we drove through Canberra, you know, we could have ended up here. This could have been where we ended up. And I actually love Canberra. I would go there and spend a few days from time to time. I think it's fantastic, but really it could have been the place I would be for those who are old enough, the Whitlam government, which in how many days time, four days time, it is. Uh, since they were elected, 2nd of December, 1972. And uh, of course they were thrown out at the 75 election after, of course, the, uh, the famous John Kerr dismissing the government back in, the, in November that year. And because of the throwing out of the Whitlam government, they were basically under the new Fraser government. There were basically very few jobs available, not very little recruitment going on in Canberra. And so. That's, I didn't get a job in Canberra as an economist and I started work as a market research, but I actually see that looking back in terms of where I ultimately went, I became one of the few people around who had actually expertise as a market researcher, which is a fact cross-sectional analysis, I suppose, for the technical people who might understand what I mean, versus forecasting, which is time series analysis. And the two together are actually quite powerful. And 
I used to develop at VI Shrapnel a lot of forecasting models for particularly building related companies on everything from timber to bricks to plasterboard to concrete to, because you could actually use the, all the information from a market research point of view together with your forecasting information, but that's a side point, but yeah, the value, uh, I, I, I gained enormous value probably from that market research experience in that first job. Just a brief outline on the basis that most people are of faith here. I, I came to faith at the age of, and uh, we, uh, while I'd attended church fortnightly with my parents, fortnightly used to go, same for whatever reason. But a friend who I'd been through school with for five years, uh, at the end of his first year at university, uh, and over the following couple of months, I noticed something had changed about him. And uh, the bottom line was he'd come to a, a living faith, a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he challenged me one, one day over a game of snooker, I think it was, that what I thought a Christian was, and I gave some vague answer. And uh, he then spoke in terms of it being about a personal relationship with uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that was fresh news for me. Got me thinking over about a three-month period and uh, until ultimately I gave my life over to the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, reminded of Luke 9, 23, 24, you know, for those, sorry, Jesus said, if anybody want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. So I committed my life to the Lord and, you know, it was very assured of basically my salvation and the fact that I had eternal life because of the promises of verses such as 1 John 5, 11 and 12 about whoever has the son has life, whoever has not the son does not have life. If you ever, if you ever want to answer anyone about the confidence you have in your faith, refer to 1 John 5, 11 and 12. I've had opportunity to do that on a number of occasions and it's, uh, in fact, I'm, I don't know whether anybody remembers this. Does anybody remember Michael Willisy interviewing? Now I've just had a mental blank. Billy Graham in the nine, when he was here for the 1979 crusade, held at Lambic race course. And he, he actually grilled him about this issue when Billy started to talk about the confidence that he had in faith of his eternal life that he was going to heaven. I think it's important that we all have that confidence. Our decision to change, sorry, the decision to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ really changed my life fundamentally, my, my direction, my priorities, every key aspect of my life, every key decision of my life, who was to marry, my work, how I did my job, how I lived, all my relationships, I saw that basically giving control over to God, the one who created me, was the way to go. And basically, I'm not saying I've done that perfectly, but it is what I've sought to live by. And uh, so I'd say that, that that decision that I made back in May 1974 was, yeah, life-changing. Let me give a bit more about information or, or, or comments with regard to talking about faith impacting decision-making. Getting a right perspective on money when you 
when you come to faith in Christ, will be critical if you were to make wise decisions on property. As Christians, we need to submit all our life decisions to God. He's interested in all of our life. There shouldn't be compartments of our life that he doesn't get involved in. So, yeah, we might say, yeah, okay, he's here in my marriage, but the money issues, yep, I'll handle those things. That's not the way it should work. We need to hand over those things to God, whether it be the job we do, where we live, how much we give to support Christian ministry at a local level or, uh, or to missionaries, whether we rent or buy, how much we're prepared to spend on property. This is particularly for any younger people, but could be any age for that matter. What size mortgage should I limit myself or ourselves as a couple to? I did say limit, not what the bank is prepared to lend you. I think compared to the baby boom generation like myself, maybe because we lived through 17% housing interest rates, yeah, this idea that basically if the bank's prepared to lend you up to, you know, 1 million, one and a half, 2 million, whatever, whatever the number might be, basically based on your household income, then that's all good and fine. But one should be really evaluating and saying, well, okay, on those mortgage repayments, can I still give an offer tree to the church? Could I still support maybe some missionaries? Can I, yeah, how, how's my family going to live basically in that environment? How's it going to affect decisions regarding, you know, whether we're both working full-time or whether we're both, one of us might be working part-time or whatever it might be. Once you commit to a, a mortgage of a certain size, it tends to drive everything else. And I think that's round the wrong way sometimes. I think we have to start with thinking, well, okay, what, what are the things that are most valuable to us that we want to focus on in life in terms of our family? And basically then work back from that and saying, well, okay, on the basis of that, this is probably what we could afford. And therefore, okay, what would that look like in terms of how much we borrowed and working back the other way where we might live? Now, maybe if I, I think what could be helpful if I relate some of the key decisions in my life, because otherwise you might just think this is sort of a bit academic, but I've sort of sought to live this out in many examples over time of how God has basically guided and directed me. And things have it always regarding decisions on jobs, regarding decisions on where I've lived. I could have to say that the verse that I well, verses I look at all the time to guide me from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been one to remind me how I am to live. And I believe there's been blessing as a result. Those verses, trust in the Lord with all your heart, excuse me, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. So it's about handling things over to God, because if we keep control, the outcomes are not all, they won't be always good. And, and certainly they may be not the best and the ones that God is wanting for us and for his glory. So yeah, I find, I find those verses are ones that uh, are, are really critical and, uh, and I'll give you some examples of where maybe I've had to turn around and do things differently from what I was expecting. Now being Retrenched at the age of 24 in my first job at Phillips. I was retrenched uh, one week after our first wedding anniversary. I remember 
walking into the office. If you haven't been retrenched, it's an interesting feeling when you, you walk out of the office, you know, the office of the boss after he's told you exactly everything that you'd been doing is seen as pretty useless. <laughs> it's no longer important, basically. So I've always been able to relate to other people who have been through that. So it have happened to me at 24. I'd hate to think what it'd be like if you're 45 or 55 when it happens to you. It's, it's, it's a lot harder than obviously at 24. But, but being retrenched at 24 in my first job and ending, and ending up developing a career in the building industry and becoming a building and property forecaster occurred because I believe God was leading, you know, God led me in that particular direction. Though my preference, interestingly, like when I, lost the job at Phillips. So it's all the jobs I was applying for initially were related to consumer research. I wanted to say with consumer products, going to work with them. In fact, get a load of this. The week before I was retrenched, I knocked back a job that was going to pay 30 or 35% more. Okay. Can you imagine what I felt as I walked out of the office thinking, well, God, you must've got this all wrong. I mean, must've known this retrenchment was coming up. Why didn't I accept that? But it was with a company, Blue Metal Industries, which ultimately got bought by Burrell. And I actually had some ongoing contact with the guy who had offered me the job. But anyway, I just got overruled and he ended up, I ended up working at James Hardy. And in fact, I could always think, I was thinking about this recently because my wife and I just got back from some time over in WA. Does anybody know much about that? WA or ever lived in Perth? No. Do you know it's a sandy place? Do you, do you know what sort of fencing they used to have there 30 or 40 years ago? They used to put asbestos cement sheets, you know, those corrugated sheets in the ground. And so I went over there after only working for them for two or three months, did some research and then went back again for about two weeks or more just researching that market because they had about 80 to 80, 80 to 85 percent of every fence in Perth was a corrugated asbestos cement fence but, and uh, at the time so uh, and I, I actually found it fascinating I sort of became an expert on the fencing market <laughs> in WH but it, I, I thought yeah and then the other part of it was the building industry is just such a cyclical industry and I found that just fascinating compared to some consumer products that, yeah, like washing machines, refrigerant, once, like, okay, 40 years ago, not everybody had a dishwasher. So there was still a penetration of them, but for basically refrigerators and washing machines, it was just. I learned much from working at that time at James Hardy, and I was blessed with a great boss who had been there for quite some time. And yeah, so effectively in 1984, I landed the job as the building industry forecaster at BI Shrapnel, as they were known at the time, and who was and is Australia's leading, Australia, sorry, Australia's leading economic forecaster in the building industry and also property markets. The experience I'd gained at James Hardy really was the perfect preparation for becoming the chief forecaster of building activity. And in a short period of time, I was being interviewed in the media with 
newspapers, TV, radio, etc. And from around 1986, we increased our forecasting capability across all property sectors, actually, starting with residential and commercial industrial retail. And my focus was more on residential. And I started to regularly make comments to the media on forecasts for Sydney house prices and over time predictions for all capital cities. Just to give you a bit of an example, I still have newspaper clippings at home and I was looking at them the other day and back in around 1986, 87, I made a prediction for Sydney house prices that there'd be about a 50 to 60% price gain for houses from mid 1987 over the following three years. Sounds pretty brave, 50 to 60%. You should remember inflation was about 8% at the time. So, you know, just to maintain with inflation, it could grow 25 or 30. So 50 to 60 wasn't a massively brave forecast, but it was seen to be. In the two years from mid-1987 to mid-1989, as interest rates hit 17%, house prices in Sydney went up 98% in two years. 98% in two years. Someone might have bought property around that time and you'll and you remember that. That was the fastest, that's the fastest growth I've ever seen in a two-year period, basically, on, on a per annum basis, but not the largest upturn. The largest upturn was 136% over the seven years to 2003, from 96 to 2003. In fact, I remember going out with my daughter, who was a teenager at the time, looking at an apartment that thought, oh, we might buy an apartment investment property somewhere around breakfast point. And... Uh, so even I got caught up in it a little bit. It, this was around mid-03 because in 03, if you weren't buying residential property, you were a nobody, a bit like, you know, a bit, a bit like leading up to 17, actually. 16, 17 financial year was pretty much the same. Basically, everybody was just getting into it, particularly from an investment point of view and other occupiers were just paying ridiculous prices. I'll come back later and talk about cycles more. I want to just talk a little bit more about some of these decision-making processes, but I'll talk about property prices, what I've seen and sort of where things are headed shortly. What I want to do is just give some lessons, I suppose, from some of my property decisions that we've learned, my wife and I, basically. In 1976, Sabrina and I had been dating for about two years. And uh, while it turned out we got engaged about 12 months later, we made a decision then, which sort of it's a bit interesting thinking back now, to buy a block of land in Kings Langley, which is just to the north of Blacktown, near close to Seven Hills. We bought this block of land for $15,300. And uh, now the key principle I want to take out of this, I suppose, people, is that that decision, while we sold that land two years later for the princely profit of $300, so it wasn't a great first up decision from this guy who supposedly became some sort of expert, $300, guess what? We had equity of $8,000 as a deposit on the subsequent house purchase. The commitment to repaying a loan meant we'd made four savings, basically, that uh, might not have occurred if we you know, if we hadn't have, hadn't have taken out a loan to, to buy that property, to buy that land, we might've been spending it on travel 
you know, clothes, restaurants, whatever it might be. We didn't have mobile phones back then, obviously. So now while I appreciate the amount of money required today for a deposit is huge, I mean, it's phenomenal. If you wanted to get into residential property, either as an owner, occupier, or as an investor, then you'll need to make sacrifices and start saving at some point. It has, I mean, you have to give up something, basically. And by the way, if there was, if there's anybody younger out there listening, you know, $8,000 that we saved was equivalent in 1977 of my annual income at the time. That's about what I was earning. So together we'd save the amount that in a two, in a two year period, in a two year period, we'd save that amount. So just for that in context, so in today's dollars, what a young professional person, a year or two out of university could be earning 70 to 80,000. Is that reasonable? Assumption. Yep. So that'd be like saving 20K per annum or a couple saving 40,000 per annum. Okay. It's possible, but you need to be disciplined, not spend money. And yeah, maybe you, dare I say it, you maybe have to go back and live with your parents for a period of time. And, and more and more people, yeah, certainly the people that I've worked with over the last 10 or 15 years, you saw that happen a lot. People did go back home. And, and in fact, probably that's, the, that's probably the easiest way as parents can actually assist their kids, you know, to get, get on top of it. But they have to be disciplined in terms of not spending the money on the overseas trip or the other stuff because, you know, I didn't go on an overseas First overseas trip, I was what, 20, 27, basically. I wasn't heading off like people do these days. So discipline is required. You have to sacrifice something. Now in deciding whether to sell, build on that block of land to sell it, but ahead of getting married in September, 1978, Sabrina and I sought to understand, you know, God's plan and direction because yeah, you know, we would probably have to rent for at least three or four years or maybe longer at the time to, for the, yeah, the money to borrow, to build a house on that block of land. And we thought the alternative was then, do we buy an established property and uh, in a cheaper area, potentially, you know, you might look at Kings Langley and say, that's, look, Kings Langley is probably, I'm just trying to think, Rudy Hill, probably medium price is getting up at 900,000 these days to a million. Basically, Kings Langley is probably 1.3 to 1.4. So it, at, at that time, the house, what we ended up doing was actually my aunt was going to sell and we bought her house, which is actually where her parents, my grandparents had lived for a number of years till they both died and she'd never married. And we bought the house of her for $31,000. So again, in context, it was probably the difference we had a block of land, $15,000, and we were probably going to be spending, what, 25000 for a reasonable house at the time. But, yeah, an extra $9,000 was a lot, of, a lot of money at times. And so we ended up buying this two-bedroom house built in the late 40s. It was on a large block of land. That's probably a negative these days. I wouldn't spend the time. I wouldn't encourage people to have to spend the time mowing that grass like I remember doing. In fact, I, I stopped playing cricket actually, I think on Saturdays and it was only a kilometer from the railway station. So it meant that if my wife couldn't drive me to the station because she was driving to work, I could work, walk, it wasn't too far. So we basically sought to live within our means. We saw the benefits of being within the, I suppose, eight kilometers of parents 
probably four or five of one set of parents and eight kilometers to the others for when we might have children and obviously the babysitting opportunity. So we thought about those issues. I'd stress that as Christians, we should be making decisions around God's plans for us and what is best for our family, how we can serve God in a church and not by choosing to live in the best or trendiest suburb or even the best long-term investment. If people start to get up and walk out, well, then that's, <laughs> you know, I've said, I should, I should say this, this talk tonight's been in gestation for probably something like seven or eight years because I did a course called Half Time, which was about what you're going to do in your second half of your life. And a chap who actually had a Christian chap who's got a journalistic background said, this is what you should be doing out there, talking and challenging people about these things. So you're literally the first people to have that challenge put to them. Now, those comments there are really the opposite of what the secular world screams out at you in Sydney. Everyone is focused on the number one dinner conversation, Sydney property prices. I've made a living of it. I mean, I used to, I'd make utterances and back when we had the Daily Mirror and the Sun or the the Sun Herald or Sunday Telegraph on Sunday, you could be pretty sure you could get, you know, I'm, and I'm talking massive headlines, massive headlines. So people like David Koch talked, you know, I took be interviewed by him for, for over a good 20, 25 year period. It, it is just the thing that everybody's caught up with. And the interesting thing is it's just as important out where I live because the people out my way would aspire to living in Glenmore Park, Glenmore Park. If you, do you know Glenmore Park? They would aspire to live in Glenmore Park. If you couldn't quite get there, someone in Rudy Hill might want to live in Minchinbury, which would be, what did my children always call it? But it's, it's a community. It's a community. That was the tongue in cheek sort of thing. But it, everybody, wherever they are, they want to create something that's a little bit extra special in their area that's seen in a favorable way. So that status seeking is not something just for this inner areas of Sydney or the North Shore or the, the Eastern suburbs. It is across all areas of Sydney. It's just on a different magnitude. But sorry, just as a, a blind, because most of the journalists I spoke to over the years, most of them live in the inner West. I mean, that's where most of them come from and that's their perspective in the last 10 or 15 years i've tried to educate them a little bit more about the west because it is all you know west of Parramatta is about 50 percent of the market or southwest and northwest so yeah the critical thing out of all this is that we don't live and put it take on a level of debt that really is beyond our means and and what god might be wanting to commit to it you know, God, Jesus said that we shouldn't be worried about what we eat or what we, you know, what we wear. He, you know, he said, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, uh, yeah, we can't serve God and mammon. We can't serve God and wealth. You know, we make bad decisions and they ultimately have consequences. They lead to stress, anxieties, you know, the worries about whether I can pay my mortgage. Those things worry everybody when you have a big mortgage, but they can be avoided if we cut back expectations and obey God by asking him what he wants us to do. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 has always been a great couple of verses for me in terms of it commands us to be not anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be known to God. And God promises the peace 
He promises the peace of God to us that surpasses all understanding. So, yeah, do we trust God this much, that much? And certainly my experience is you can trust God and, and he's true to his word as to, to giving us that peace. In 1986, my wife and I, we had a two and a half year old son. We we're expecting our second child. And, you know, I was just over 30 and we wanted to find a larger home. I was working in Chatswood at BI Shrapnel at the time. I'd been there about two years. I had a, if I caught the train, it was about 60 kilometers from St. Mary's. About a 50 kilometer drive, I'd see clients sometime and I'd need to drive. And I was trying to find a property that we might be able to be within a 30 kilometer, sorry, 30 minute commute from Chatsford that we could afford. Remembering that this was a time that 13 and a half percent housing interest rates in 86 quickly went to 15 and a half, not long after, and then eventually to 17% in 89. And we really weighed up that decision about being closer to work against the debt and mortgage payments that this would involve. And also the location would give me, and our location would need to be within 30 minutes of the offices. I didn't want to suddenly find a place that didn't have good public transport, or if I was left driving, that I'd still end up being caught, yeah, caught in traffic for 45 or 60 minutes each way. So, and by the way, I should say it wasn't my wife's intention or mine that, that Sabrina would return to full-time work. I fully supported with that. I was, my father was a poultry farmer typical of that generation. My mother stopped working, What she couldn't, I think she worked for the bank of New South Wales. I don't think you were allowed to keep working when you got married. Is that right? Yeah. I thought that was the case. Yeah. Oh, when you worked, walked into a bank in 1978, they didn't, there was no interest in my wife's income. None at all. Oh, it's oh, just, it's just hard to believe. But so that was a key value. So come back to the values, basically. We wanted one parent at home, at least maybe for the first seven or eight years in our children's life and maybe longer. And that's what happened. As it turned out, Sabrina never returned to full-time, well, to paid employment, as, as she reminded many people from time to time, if people asked what she did at a work Christmas party for me, she'd say, well, probably teaching you, you know, the equivalent of your children and uh, because I help out basically with helping, she developed a whole lot of skills actually by getting onto committees, both at primary school and then at Redial High School. Anyway, God ultimately started to make it clear that maybe we should remain in the Western suburbs, be close to parents. Sabrina had a, a major issue with the first birth and our son Andrew was born a month premature. And we wanted to revert, be, continue to be involved in the local church at the Anglican Church at St. Mary's and to have a lower mortgage. Now, again, where we now live in Reddy Hill was not my initial preference. In fact, you know, I've been looking around Marsfield, Eastwood, West Ride, et cetera. And, uh, but, you know, again, I had this limit. I didn't want a mortgage of more than $60,000. 60000 Actually. Yeah. But basically, it, that, you know, that was going to, that was going to be hard. And basically if we bought a place for 125 or $130,000, we 
we were going to be probably quite a number of years, particularly with that high interest rate environment that was going to come upon us before we'd be able to renovate. So and my parents told me about a property in Rudy Hill that was available, a doctor retired and moved away and the place hadn't sold, I think for about three months. Anyway, I totally ignored them. I didn't want to live there, get a load of this because we used to call it Snob Hill as kids. When I was at high school, I, in fact, I remember picking a guy up from there playing squash, but, uh, and so I just totally ignored it. But one day we finally looked at it. Anyway, it did tick a lot of the boxes. It's a great place for holding ministry. And we ended up uh, renting it with an option to buy after three months. And that's exactly what happened. And again, I'd say that was a classic example where, yeah, this wasn't what my initial, I wanted to get closer to work. I thought that was the most important thing initially, but ultimately I had to balance that up against the size of the mortgage and other impacts given decisions we were making with regard to Sabrina not working. And 36 years on, we're still there. The debt was paid off. You know, I, what, I can't remember, it was probably a bit over 40,000, the mortgage, and the debt was paid off by about 1996. And we, and we became empty nesters back in 2011. This is where it's even more difficult and challenging, particularly when it comes to understanding how can we have cheaper or more affordable property prices. This hit, this hit in our backyard because in 2015, a property developer was planning a medium density development with about 30 villas, few, few townhouses in that, but because most of them were internal, not facing a main road, you could do villas. At the back of our property, there was an historic house. So the original development had happened in the early sixties, an 1880s house, a guide, this developer had bought up, I think three or four adjacent properties. And he approached us about whether we would be interested in selling. And we had to decide, do we stay or sell out at a likely premium price? to avoid being surrounded by significant development, losing the amenity of trees, the historic house that I could see from my study. What do we do? Guess what? It's the classic issue of nimbyism. It's not in my backyard. It'd come to me. You know, the attitude that drives so many existing property owners, usually people 50 age, 50 years plus, at the expense of first home buyers trying to get into the market. So you know, higher house prices come from our collective response of seeking to limit future development in simple terms. Now that's not saying there has, there has to be some control. There shouldn't be bad quality development, but if you limit development and there's been plenty of times, particularly, particularly in the nineties, the second half of the nineties and uh, through the two thousands. There was very restrictive development. You know, it's not a political comment, but the Labor government at the time felt everything could be satisfied by medium high density development. So there was very little fringe development. Whereas in the last 10 years under the Liberal government, there's been major tranches of land opened up, significant upgrade of roads. And so both in the Northwest, in the Marsden Park areas and others, and down to the Southwest. Long Camden Valley Way, those things have just opened up significantly. But obviously these days, construction's always going to be in medium or high 
density development, and that's going to require a purchase of existing houses. And some of that stuff's going to be in our backyards, basically. So I face the reality of this issue in our own backyard, so to speak, yet I'd regularly spoken against restrictive residential property development practices as they only bid up prices. So the decision was about, you know, I had to think about, well, okay, double standards here. What, what am I going to do? And thinking about what does God want us to do? Because at the point, at that point in time in 2015, I had no idea when I'd be retiring. I was a 50% owner of BIA Shrapnel with Frank Gelber, the chief economist. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be making a decision to move now. And then in another five or seven years, I'd be retired and then decide that this wasn't the place I wanted to be. So I didn't want those extra costs. So we stayed. And again, you know, I believe under God's pleading and direction, there was, there wasn't, there was little additional noise you know, from the neighbors, the amenity of the area, in fact, has risen around Rudy Hill over the last five years. We have a neighborhood shopping center about 600 meters from my place. Like today, I only have to walk 600 meters and there's a new gym that opened up there. There's a two, you know, if you haven't done this, come out west sometime. There's a 2000 seat entertainment theater that opened in Rudy Hill in December 19, just before COVID. Unfortunately, it spent the following just short of two years shut, unfortunately. But, you know, in the first, we, we saw David Campbell and the Sydney Symphony perform there and then another Sydney thing. In fact, the Sydney Symphony was going to come out there on a regular basis while the concert hall was being refurbished, but that didn't happen because the place was shut, but it's a fantastic facility, very high quality. And also I've increased my cycling over, and since COVID hit, because I'm only about 800 meters from the M7 cycleway and you can go 20 kilometers south and 20 kilometers north. So. I've discovered new places that I never knew because I was too busy working in terms of local amenities, parks, and cycling areas. And Anglicare has opened up a retirement village and a nursing home. And my mother-in-law moved into that nearly four years ago. So that's enormously convenient for Sabrina to have her so close by and not have to travel distances for her. So that's, that's been good. If we'd moved, that may have been a, a negative. So. God, God has blessed us abundantly. And just to give you an example, before I do talk about the property, about property, we've actually got a couple at our, at our church who would, would have been in their mid fifties and moved into our church 15 years ago. They were sitting, they were, they were attending the Carlingford Anglican church. It's a big church. Carlingford. They were living in Epping and obviously Carlingford church is very well catered for, well resourced, plenty of, you know, it's a big church, you know, you're probably more like us, struggling a little bit more. And they talked to the late Ivan Lee, Bishop of Western Sydney about possible churches and where their gifts could be utilized. And they chose to move to St. Clair and attend St. Mary's Anglican. And I think there's always that challenge to consider yeah, about retiring into a place, maybe moving and selling down and freeing up some capital that can be used for other things. And also basically, you know, encouraging younger people to possibly move, move further out to churches that aren't so well-resourced. 
and uh, not saying that you are massively resourced here, but I'm sure there are plenty of cases where that message could certainly be a real challenge. One of the verses I always re- seek to apply and, and I think is critical is Philippians 4, 11 to 12, for I've learned to be content in whatever I have. I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. And I think it's important to apply that to our housing needs. Let me talk about some comments about residential property over the next, just probably about another five or seven minutes. And what I've seen in terms of the cycles, I mean, there's just been phenomenal cycles over that time. During property booms, prices can rise, say, from 40% in an upturn, which is what occurred basically between June quarter 2020 after the initial COVID correction and lasted up until March this year to the time where it rose 136% inside a seven-year period. Even over the last 10 years, the market has been extremely cyclical, partly due to COVID and partly now due to the sudden rise in interest rates since May this year. You had an 85% increase in median house prices across Sydney from 2012 to 17, 85%. That was followed by a 15% decline, and that's one of the biggest declines, probably up to where we're headed to at the moment, a 15% decline between mid-17 and mid-19. This is the one that I still struggle to get my head around, a 53% rise as the market recovered, got hit by COVID, set back, and then just took off 53% rise between mid-19 and March this year. At the moment, we're sitting at a 10% decline in prices over the since, since March to the end of October. What a roller coaster. Unbelievable. Like I've been forecasting for nearly 40 years and, and I was staggered by the way the market recovered. Like I, I'm still trying to explain it. Like you can explain it by everybody chasing an, an established attached house and getting out of apartments and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we'd also shut the borders. There weren't the same number of people coming into the country. But it was phenomenal. Now, just a few facts and figures. Long-term house prices in Sydney over the last 30 years have risen by about 6 to 7% per annum, okay, as we've returned to a lower inflationary environment since the early 90s and significantly lower interest rates. How's that growth been achieved? Well... Basically, it's been from, it's, it's well above household income growth. Household income growth is not running at 6 or 7% per annum. But it's due to the substantial reduction in interest rates over the last 20 years, like we got down to a low of what you were basically paying around 2, 2.3%. Most people at the trough of the cycle uh, late last year, early this year. And that's basically massively increased people's borrowing capacity and it's just fed up prices. But it's also due to continued rising two-income households over the last 10 years or so. And those key drivers are really ones that have not just occurred in Sydney, but they've occurred in regional New South Wales and other capital cities. Now, if you're looking at the future and look at both of those two factors, there really isn't scope for there to be price growth resulting from sustained low interest rates over the next 10 years or probably 20 years. 
it's very unlikely that we will see other than for a short period of time in that 10 or 20 years, that interest rates would get back to 2%. 2% was an emergency level that won't occur again. You know, what, sh what would be a normal level of interest rates? Well, you could say it's got a four in front of it, may have a five in front of it. If you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would have said if it was five to 7% interest rates, housing, we'd be pretty happy. But uh, so there certainly isn't going to be a low interest rate environment like we've seen, particularly over the last five years, to drive up house prices. And there's not much scope for further growth in household income. Sorry, in, in the number of two income families, I should say. One factor that could help in the mid to upper end of the market, let's say homes, houses, at least houses above $2 million is inheritances, which might provide some additional factors, funds to generation X's, generation Y's that could boost house prices over the next 20 years. But the, these are going to be factors that are, are probably are going to be help more the upper end of the market than, you know, out of Sydney areas. In terms of the long-term view, I would say if I was, if I was buying a property today, I'd say four to 5% is about what you expect, not the six to seven, maybe five to 6% more around the inner areas of Sydney and less than 4% in outer suburbs. These massive cycles highlight the importance of timing when you enter in a market. So look, I, do, I don't want to go over too long now, so I'll just make the quick comment. Obviously, if you're a first home buyer, you may as well wait until you think you've pretty well got the bottom of the market, but of course, no one rings a bell at the bottom of the market. Okay. You basically, you know, where's it headed? Yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll make a comment in a minute, but basically. Yeah, maybe you're best to sit on your hands for another two, one to two years if you're intending to buy for the first time or maybe become an investor for the first time. There's no need to rush into this market. It, it won't bottom inside the next six to nine months. And I suspect when it does bottom, which I suspect might be more towards the end of next year or at the later early part of 2024, we then could go through a one or two year period of stagnation. Don't expect the market to necessarily rebound like it did in 19 or again, straight after COVID uh, correction in June quarter, 2020. Uh, Time to transact is always at the bottom of the market because the gap between what you're selling and what you're buying is at a minimum. Okay. Most people think that's not a good time. I should be doing it when the market's strong. Well, the gap's widening all the time if you're thinking of upgrading. So again, you know, sometime toward the end of next year, early 24 might be the time to, 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 if you're making upgraded decisions. If you're downgrading, sorry, you missed the boat. <laughs> if you're thinking of moving from here and going to some other part of Australia or regional New South Wales, with some of the regional New South Wales price growth has been phenomenal. You've missed the boat. So you've got to then start thinking, well, you know, my thinking about what prices were six or seven months ago, they've already come back 10%. Am I going to sort of, I've got that figure in mind that I want to get that. Well, you might be waiting quite a length of time to get back to that sort of figure. So you may be better to sell sooner rather than later, but you've got to look at these things on your own basis of your own circumstances.
The other comment I'd make that is that over the last 10 years or so, house prices have massively outperformed apartments. And this has been accentuated since the start of the pandemic. Will it continue? I, I think over the next five to 10 years, it'll probably start to narrow again. You know, the, the market regulates, it's, there's market forces going on, apartments in relative terms, depending on where you are, you know, places like your Parramatta and those areas, prices have been actually fairly depressed. Closer you come into here, I know the Dremoyne area, cause that's where my daughter and her husband were reading previously, you know, those areas performed pretty well back in 2020, 2021. So the prices, Heather, I, well, first of all, I'd say interest rates will go up probably still another half a percentage point, could go up three quarters, any more than that. I think the reserve banks overdoing it. I think Phil Lowe probably, uh, yep. It's right that people have been calling for some apologies because I don't think he should have been saying no rate rises to 2024, but it's another question. So rates rise another half percent. You're probably looking at a discount, a discount housing rate somewhere in the region of five and a half percent in the next four months and possibly higher. So we're probably only about halfway through the price decline. I'd say by late next year, early 24, prices could be down 20% from the peak. Okay. That's a big number. Yeah. If you, I'll tell you, if you asked me five or seven years ago, would I ever see price declines of that sort of nature? People thought it was going to happen with the GFC. I don't know whether anybody remembers a guy called Steve Keane from University of Western Sydney, he and I went head to head on Peter Switzer's program back in 2000 and late 2008. He was gloom and doing crazy, crazy stuff. And yeah, prices declined five, 7% max at that particular point. Now, of course, there could be some areas of Sydney where you see prices go down 25% because the boom was greater. The bigger the boom the bigger the correction. On the other hand, there may be areas that decline by less than 15% because the growth hasn't been as strong. So look, in summary, I pray that tonight has, has challenged some of your thinking about how as a Christian, you should be making decisions about residential properties, purchases, where you might live. And also trust that some of the insights on the residential market that have been helpful as a guide in your decision-making. God lead you and direct your path as, as he has done me over the last 45 years. And can I leave you with probably the most challenging thing really is regarding our thinking with the words from Romans 12 too. do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I'd be happy to answer any questions on any of these aspects that I've touched on. Thank you.
I think, uh, I think it will shift people out. I mean, look, you know, well, I see it in my lifetime, the impact of Badgerys Creek or what is it? Nancy Bird, Walton Airport. You know, once that's been operating 20 or 30 years, there'll be a massive amount of development around that area. And, you know, on the basis that travel continues to grow, I think, yeah, you know, those are the areas. Parramatta's gone ahead leaps and bounds. It's an area occasionally because my son lives in Westmead and my daughter and her husband were living some years back in Rhodes. I've, I've ridden my bike between those areas and Parramatta's, I mean, it's, beautiful area along beside the river actually it's and uh, there's a lot of positives a lot more restaurants and a lot of those sort of things so all that sort of amenities there the state government sought over the years to shift state employees out there Sydney Water went there a long time ago department planning's moved out there in more recent times so I I think that will continue to go ahead I think this desire to actually get people to be closer to their to their jobs is uh, people talk about it, but trying to make it happen. 2004 or just ahead of 2004, I was approached by the department of planning people and said, look, would you sit on an expert panel for the housing industry as an input to the people who are developing the metropolitan strategy for Sydney? We're going to, we're going to fully integrate the whole issue of, of where the residential land development's happening, the industrial land. We're going to make sure all the infrastructure is going to happen and the financing and all the rest. All this is going to happen. I sort of half believed them at the time and thought, yeah, maybe they committed to making this happen. It was a like a, it went nowhere. Yeah, I think like redevelopment of Parramatta Road, you know, and getting more development sort of on the streets back from Parramatta Road. I mean, how long has that been going on for? So I'm talking 2005, 17 years ago, basically, and we still haven't really tackled some of those issues. But you need integrated approaches of infrastructure. What I spoke about in terms of the northwest and southwest, Richmond Road and Marston Park and Camden Valley Way and the Stockland Development, Willow, Willow Dale, Leppington, those areas, they started to happen because the roads went in. Put infrastructure in and the development will follow. And you've got to give people a choice. And I think the mistake that the Labor Party and the Department of Planning were making in the mid to late 90s was everybody should just live in an apartment. Now you've got to provide some choice. And what you find is, look, the fastest growing part of the population at the moment is the Indian component, okay? Those people, well, that, yeah, when they moved to Australia 10 and 15 years ago, they lived around Westmead, Parramatta, Harris Park in apartments. But they're the people driving the demand for the land house and land packages out in your, you know, towards Schofields and all those areas out in the Northwest. Now you've got to provide that option to people, forcing people into apartments is, you know, the reality is that's where a lot of the younger people want to go, particularly when they're renting in their younger ages. And there'll be a higher percentage of younger people when they have children will continue to stay in apartments than probably what happened 20 years ago in the future. But infrastructure is critical and Look, I'm a bit more optimistic that, you know, governments sort of get it a little bit more, but it's, it's tough decisions you've got to make and sometimes bringing the people along on those tough decisions, a bit like the NIMBYism, it's hard going. Question about 
Listen, many of us worry about our kids. Yep. Right. And then others of us worry about the poor in Sydney. Yep. So what do you do? What are your views on social? Like, how do you make sure that everybody has secure, secure house? Yeah. Roof over their head. Yeah. What are the policy settings? What do you, what do you, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on it? Look, this, this stuff's hard. I mean, over the last 30 years, there's a much lower percentage of public sector built housing than what was being done, say, in the 60s and 70s and, and through the whole, up, up until the late 80s. You know, that typically used to be about 10% of the market in terms of what was being constructed. Both, certainly liberal governments, but labor governments too, over the last 20 and 30 years, have tended to take a view with public housing to help to help the poor, the disadvantaged. What we will do is we will provide rental subsidies basically. So they've gone the route of actually saying, well, the private sector will provide the rental housing and we'll provide subsidies to those people. So that's the choice that's been made. There has been things like, uh, what is it, NRAS, the Labor government when they got in in 07, and I used to deal quite a bit with Tenure Plevisic. So they had a, they had a policy of providing some sort of discount for developers who were building housing that could be rented out about 20% below the market. And I think there were quite some successes from that scheme. And there's some things around at the moment under the new federal Labor government, some similar things that they're looking to do. The other thing recently, I, I just did a small consulting job in the last couple of months for a Christian-based organization called Hope Housing which is actually to do with providing shared equity loans for, for essential workers who are required to hopefully live somewhere closer to where their job is because, you know, the paramedics or fireys or teachers or nurses or whatever, and these people might be having to travel an hour and a half. And so they can't afford to live in the area and, and of course, those particular occupations, they're struggling to find people. And so, uh, yeah, this, look, the numbers are not big, but that's what their objective is to provide shared equity loans where, you know, the investor might be taking 30 or 40% of the, of the property, basically. So there are different innovative solutions. It's great that Christian people are thinking about what could be done, but Unfortunately, there's no easy solutions. Like you got to be a bit skeptical because I've watched it for 40 years and I could, I could dig out newspaper clippings. I could show you quotes from prime ministers or ministers for housing and say, we've got to solve this housing affordability crisis. We, the Frank Gilbert and I went in and saw Nick Griner in the late eighties uh, when Bob Hawke had called a housing summit. But, yeah, if I look back at that work from thirty-three years ago, not a lot of things have been solved. So, but the politicians talk about it. The, the trouble is the quickest way to bring about an affordability improvement is to see a twenty percent reduction in prices. But us existing homeowners are not too happy about that, which I think John Howard reminded people a few times. 
you know, that's not, it's not an easy thing. So there's, there's never, there's winners and losers basically always. And that's like that. There's a lot of polls. There was another question. Um, Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a balance there. Look, I think through some of the things I've said tonight, I think you've got to ask yourself the question, what is, what is your priority, basically? So if, you, if you're taking on a debt that's going to basically reduce your opportunity for Christian ministry, because you know, you're just so busy servicing that debt, if it reduces the opportunity that, you know, you, know, you might, you, you know, so your wife might want to only work a three-day week or whatever it is. Or you might. 20, or you might. Or you might either. These days, you might. My son, my, my son's married to a doctor. Who's, she's about to do, you know, she's about three years into her oncology training. You know, she's 10 years plus out, but three years in oncology training and now she's going to do a PhD, but he's trying to, he's decided he was working for Alfred Chris's director of student services. And he's now, he's left that in the last six months to set up a consulting business coaching and some other related stuff. Cause it will give him flexibility as his son starts school next year to be there when he comes out of school. Now his wife will be able to do that some of the time because well, fortunately She's doing a PhD at, at, at the, the Garvin Institute, which I think is Vincent's. It's quite a distance from, from, from Westmead, but, but yeah, you, you have to make some of that, you know, determine, well, okay, how's this stuff going to affect, you know, where you live will ultimately affect the degree of, you know, the mortgage you have, you know, I mean, if I. If I decided to say by, you know, to be frank, it got to the point where I think we would have been in West Ride, we wouldn't have been able to afford Eastwood, basically. But if we'd bought in one of those areas, the debt that we had would have changed our lifestyle. You know, we're in a position that, and it was, my wife was born in Italy, came to Australia when she was five and a half. I fell in love with Italy the first time I went there 40 years ago. So it's meant that we could basically travel about every two and a half, three years. We didn't have a massive debt. So we chose that as a lifestyle that we could actually do more traveling, which is great education for the kids basically. But, but yeah, those verses are challenging and, and yeah, there would be, you know, people like CT Stard and others missionaries in the past who, uh, you know, I actually think sometimes you'd look at some of the decisions they made in terms of the way they left their wife in a place, you'd probably say. That's not the way you'd be recommending people who are going off and doing missionary service today to operate. Yep. Yep. If you was, if we were looking to take out a mortgage or advising people at church, what do you reckon the reasonable amount of your capital income total and spend? Look, the figure that's used is 30%, but obviously 
you know, if you were high income earners, like let's say if the two of you were earning 250 or 300,000 a year between you, that percentage could go up potentially because all the other stuff that you need to live an sort of average sort of life, nothing spectacular is pretty much the same whether you, you know, whether you're earning so that as a percentage, you would have more disposable income available for housing. So the percentage could be higher, but then I'd still ask the question, do you need to do that? Yeah. And you might need to, from a work point of view, well, look, I can't have, look up. I spent, I spent an hour and 10 minutes going back and forth on a train for a long period of time. I found that relatively productive versus driving a car, but for some people, they can't handle that. And if I'd been on a bus route, I probably would have struggled with 40 minutes. I steep, but a train I didn't find too bad. A question. So, it's a question. So, it's a question. People. Oh, a question. Yep. It's a question. Can someone ask for me? What are your thoughts on negative gearing and housing or should it be? Yeah. I should, I should say uh, we've been the hired guns for the, uh, for the industry at times and referred to that. And we've probably got ourselves in a little bit of trouble, but historically my view has always been that negative gearing should be allowed, but do you contain it? So I'd say probably over the last five years or so. I would say, yes, it's not unreasonable that any business or related costs should be deducted from the income earned from that. That's a reasonable thing. Personally, I mean, I bought a, my wife and I bought an investment property in Perth because I thought that's been the most depressed market. And I decided that was the place to buy 18, a bit over 18 months ago. You know, I probably could have bought the property outright, but we we borrowed half the money, basically, but it's not negatively geared. It's positively geared. Yeah. I, I think it's, you'd be foolish. You'd be foolish at times if you've negatively geared in a rising interest rate environment, you'd be foolish, <laughs> but is it a good or bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it should be allowed, but I, I think the government probably would be better to either limit the number of properties, say, okay. You can negatively get two. You can't do. I mean, you hear stories of people ten properties or more, or you limit the total deduction that's allowed. I would have gone that route. And by the way, the other side of it, I've tried to get this point across to some politicians, and I would have said the Liberals would have been smart if they'd actually offered this as a counter. Don't necessarily. Change negative gearing, as I suggested, but gee, it's a pretty generous capital gains tax ratio. Yeah. Yeah. We, we make 55% on a property in Redfin that we held from 2008 to 2016. And yeah, you're getting a 50% discount. Okay. It should be inflation adjusted. So if you make a lot of money in a short period of time, but inflation was only 10% and you made 50%, well, then the tax will be at your marginal tax rate on the, on the difference of that. So, you know, I would have been paying a lot more tax, but that to me would be fair. So this idea that, okay, we discount in the long term, if you hold a property for 10 or 15 years, I get the whole 50% discount because the relationship between inflation and the 
price growth is about, it's about, you know, 50% calculation is about right. But it's the short term. It's when property prices rise 90 odd percent in two years or 130 in seven years. And the inflation is like in that seven year period, the inflation would have been 25 or 30%. Okay. That's the one that's right. I don't know why the Labor Party hasn't gone on to this. I have. Sorry. Nah, there's very little untouchable. And so the really wealthy properties in the eastern suburbs or paths in the north, like your five, ten, and your twenty million and those things. I always say to people, the value of those is just whatever the person walks in the door is prepared to put on the table. It's got no relationship to any number, basically. But if you talk about more north, let's let's say these days, so the median price in Sydney got to one point four. Five, nearly 1.6 million for a house. Okay. One point, that's phenomenal. But so it's not surprising that out my way, yeah, there's properties of 1 million and 1.1, basically. But yeah, if you're talking about, you know, I know when my daughter and husband were looking, you know, around your Leichhardt's where you still can find a house, terrace, whatever. You know, in, 2019, 20, you, you would, you are know, looking at $1.8, $2 million. So in those sort of price ranges, I think the price declines will be pretty much across the board, but it'll vary significantly. As I said, it could be anything from only a 10% decline to 25%. And there may be cases where, you know, increase, the decline could be greater because the increase in the boom, I mean. Some of the data you hear reported in the media at times is probably based on very low volume. So I always get a bit cautious. Like they say, you know, the Saturday night story on the news or the Sunday night story, these are the areas that are doing the best in the market. Well, the quality of the information is probably questionable at times, but so it, you, you, you will never avoid the general, most of the market will move in a call, but there will be, but there will be some differences. So that you can do a little bit there. Mm. No, because I went to a public school. I went to Eastern Creek Public School, fantastic school, small school, probably only 250, 300 kids at the time, 30 years ago. And then they went to Real High School. My wife, we, at St. Mary's Anglican, there were people, including a chap who became a bursar at St. Paul's Grammar out at Cranebrook, out at Penrith. And so that was a place that I think we, I can't remember, I think we did have our son his latter years of primary school named down, but the more we talked about it, you know, what was great was my wife connected with people whose kids were already at the high school and we had a degree of confidence of, you know, what the school would be like. And both the children went there. 
Yeah, they both did very well at school. Son studied economics at university, but he went into full-time Christian ministry on campus with student life for about nine years. Before he got out of that, daughter did a science degree, then did nursing, and then became a health professional in the insurance industry. And yeah, so basically they have not been disadvantaged. The education process of people from other parts of Sydney is interesting because she'd have girls at university and say, but you got into university from Rudy Hill. I mean, some of the attitudes out there are just amazing. Equally over the years, I've been critical of people who, you know, I was living in Mount Druid as I was applying for jobs after finishing university. And, you know, there was too much of that stigma stuff saying, oh, you know, we're discriminated against and all the rest. I think that's overstated. Now, maybe I'm talking as a professional male here, you know, as a professional and male. So maybe, maybe if you weren't a professional, you would have been seen to be different. But I'd, in all my working life, I've never since other, the worst thing that people say is, oh, how long did it take to get here or something? Well, yeah, that's actually, that's, we just joke about that. Or, or, or when my wife was working for some doctors as a, a receptionist and admin person, you know, they'd say, you know, things like when we were going overseas for a holiday, oh, and where will you be living when you come back? This is, sorry, in the Eastern suburbs. <laughs> yeah, you, get, you got used to that sort of stuff. But, but no, in terms of the children, and their, their actual education and exposure, so 20% plus of the people in the school were Filipinos because there was in the nineties, there was in, in the Blacktown area, there was people from the Philippines. And so it was a very high percentage and, you know, like myself, my son is still connected it's, until recently has played soccer with quite a number of people that he went to school with still. The friendships have been forever. So no, but the work, yep, changed everything. Yep. 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 Can you say Yep. I think a lot Yeah, look. I, yeah, I did. Look, two, two comments I'd make is yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't be overly investing in commercial the market is or how it's going to pan out because he's not got here. Well, they had a second child recently. He, he has hardly been in the office in the last few months at all. So any organization is not going to want to continue to hold, you know, the amount of office space they need as if everybody was working in the office hundred percent of the time, which is what my generation did. Yeah. Well, sorry. I mean, two things, obviously it's, it's good news in terms of people being able to choose places that aren't necessarily so city centric or whatever they can choose to 
You know, I mean, I think, but so if I put that hat on it, I think, oh, gee, and, you know, I was working from, you know, March, 2020 until I retired in April last year. So I had that 12 months of seeing what it was like working from home and gee, it was good, but I was no longer MD. I'd stepped it down as MD back in the beginning of August, 19. So if I put my MD hat on, I think, oh, gee, how would I operate? <clears throat> I don't, I, I haven't, I, I don't, but I don't have to worry about it. So I just not sure how I would operate because the, the sad, the hard thing is basically if you're dealing with people who've worked around you for three, five, seven, ten years plus, and we had a lot of people who were 10 years plus, those people can go off and do stuff without problem. But how do I train the new person out of university? How do I, how do I communicate to them and get across to them all those little fine points and some of the detail we've talked about tonight? That, well, no, it, it comes talking, you know, just sit, having chatting in the office, chatting in the corridor and all that stuff. And so doing it through Zoom or team meetings is, yeah, you could, yeah, look, you can operate. I mean, I, I say to people, we haven't gone back to full-time Bible study. We're still doing it online with a group of between five, seven or eight people, partly because occasionally two or three of those people are different places. And I was even, I even tuned in when I was on a holidays in Perth. Like, I feel like I can talk to those guys just as if I was there in front of them in the same way. So I get that side of it. If you know people well, it can work, but the person who's just walked in the door in the new job or even 12 months, two years in, it's going to be a lot harder to just integrate them and get that knowledge base across to them in a way. I don't, I don't know how that works. Now, mate, you know, people will come up with new ways. Another issue. No, You're not just basically. Try. Yep. Totally. Thanks, Mark. Why you use That's Suddenly, with the I would well, I would have thought it has to increase in hot desking and you know, I would have, I would have thought there has to be, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but see, most people are on five and 10 year leases. So you've got to expect that there's a lot of people who over the next three to five years are going to go into that rollover situation and have to consider, well, how much space do I really need? Yeah, but I still might say I need 20% less space than what I had previously. Yeah. Which if you take 20%, if you took 20%, if any, like if there's a million square meters or 8 million square meters in Sydney, there's close to the figure. You know, if you, if you suddenly take one and a half, we said we needed one and a half million less, 20%, 
on the growth in labor force and all the rest could take 10 years to get back to where we were. Okay. That's a big number of, in terms of the property equation from an investment viewpoint. And I don't know where, I don't think the market's probably fully comprehended because no one knows. Okay, it's a, you're like, that's, it's, it's up there with the moment who, you, who can be totally confident as someone who lived through inflation in the seventies and eighties, you know, I could never believe that we were going to get to this period of low inflation that we had for the better part of nearly 30 years. Equally now, could I be confident that this is a blip and that we're going to return back to 3% or less inside the next two years? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, I could talk about that for a long time. I love talking about demographics, but it's going to turn up. I mean, within 12 months, we'll be back. We could be at 300,000 people a year coming into Australia, net, permanent and long-term. It's all this whole immigration debate. And when, you know, you know, there's a certain proportion of the population would rather shut the doors and probably blink. Yeah. The, the, it has to increase. And basically, even if we bring in 170 to 200,000 people a year on the migration program, you've got to remember that on top of that, there's also going to be this significant number of people who are coming in here, student visas, it is skyrocketed at the moment, which is not surprising, reopening. And secondly, skilled workers. We saw it with the mining investment boom. We saw it with just the shortage of workers. Well, at the moment. You, you, you travel around and try, you know, we were in, down in Albany trying to find, you know, restaurants are struggling to get people basically. That, that would, yes, because basically at the moment we're into a significant decline in construction, the recovery, you know, that happened sort of post 17 effectively, and it hasn't, it hasn't recovered. And I don't, like if I was telling you to be, I wouldn't be telling you to go out and invest in apartments today, maybe in 18 months time, which means that basically that's good news for further increases in rents and for, and, and the rents have got to increase because the yield's so low, basically. So yes, it's good news for investment in, in, in apartments over time, but I don't think there'll be a quick response to, uh, you know, I don't think we'll start to see massive apartment building and plus. The other issue for apartments is there's a lot of hangover from all the issues of building quality that were going on pre-COVID in those couple of years pre-COVID. Like that's, that sort of stuff starts, like if you're an investor and thinking of buying off the plan, you know, mm. not sure about that. <laughs>